0: readings from I and Thou. And I selected passages, uh, jumping ahead a little bit in the book, uh, in response to some of the questions and comments from last week, uh, particularly around the nature of uh, individual self-awareness or self-realization and the question of uh, the uh, use of thou not just for a human relation, but a relationship with uh, something we could call the divine. Uh, So we're going to try to address uh, some of that in in these readings. Uh, I'm going to start at, um, at page 63 here. The aim of relation is relation's own being. That is, contact with the thou. For through contact with every thou, We are stirred with the breath of the Thou, that is, of eternal life. Uh, The uh, mention of eternal life here uh, reminds me of what he said about uh, the present earlier on, which is um, not a moment in time, but an eternal present. Uh, and perhaps there's a connection there. He who takes his stand in relation shares in a reality. That is in a being that neither belongs to him nor is merely lies outside of him. All reality is an activity in which I share without being able to appropriate for myself. Where there's no sharing, there's no reality. Where there's self-appropriation, there's no reality. The more direct the contact with the thou, the fuller the sharing. Let me uh, move down a page or so to where he talks about individuality. The person says, I am. The individual says, I am such and such. Know thyself means for the person. Know thyself to have being. For the individual it means, Know thy particular kind of being. Individuality and differentiating itself from others is rendered remote from true being. We don't mean by this that the person in any way gives up his special being, his being different only that this being is not his observation point, but simply there, the necessary and significant conception of being. Individuality, on the other hand, revels in its special being, or rather mostly in the fiction of its special being, which it has made up for itself. For to know itself means basically for it, for the most part, to establish an authoritative apparent self capable of deceiving it ever more and more fundamentally and to procure for itself in looking to and honoring this apparent self the semblance of knowledge of its own being as it really is. Real knowledge of its being would lead to self-destruction or to rebirth. In other words, the kind of self knowledge the individual seeks is a knowledge that ignores or cuts the person off from others and from context. It's a kind of self awareness that is inward looking and uh, autonomous. And this is. uh, as in Buddhism, uh, delusion. The person looks on his self, and he capitalizes self. Individuality is concerned with my, and he capitalizes M, my. My kind, my race, my creation, my genius. So the person is the person of relation, of contact and context. The individual is the separate I. Individuality neither shares in or obtains any reality because reality is always shared. It differentiates itself from the other and seeks through experiencing and using to appropriate as much of it as it can. This is its dynamics, self differentiation and appropriation, each exercised on the it within the unreal. Let me skip ahead a little bit more. He who speaks the separated I, with emphasis on the capital, lays, lays bare the shame of the world spirit, which has been degraded to spirituality. It's a curious uh, notion of the idea of a world spirit. This is a kind of Hegelian. Uh, say too much about what I think he means here. But whatever that is, say, the eternal vow, the individual reduces it to a personal experience and therefore degrades it to spirituality, spirituality being a private uh, state of consciousness which you cultivate. So what is the contrast with this? He's going to give three examples. Socrates, Goethe, and Jesus. How lovely and how fitting the sound of the lively and impressive eye of Socrates. It is the eye of endless dialogue. And the air of dialogue is wafted around in it, in all its journeys, before the judges and in the last hour in prison. This I lived continuously in the relation with man which is bodied forth in dialogue. It never ceased to believe in the reality of men and went out to meet them. So it took its stand with them in reality, and reality forsakes it no more. Its very loneliness can never be forsakenness, and if the world of man is silent, it hears the voice of the daimonian, say thou. So Socrates embodies this classical idea of dialogue, of knowledge through questioning. Rather than knowledge through private contemplation, and when he's even as he is forsaken by his uh, community, he's put to death uh, by the judges of Athens. Uh, if the world of man is silent, it hears the voice of his. If his demon, you know, he had a sense of an eternal vow, we would say, that uh, he always was connected with. Then there's the example of Goethe. How lovely and legitimate the sound of the full eye of Goethe. It is the eye of pure intercourse with nature. Nature gives herself to it. And speaks unceasingly with it, revealing her mysteries to it, but not betraying her mystery. Believes in her and says to the rose, Then thou art it. That it takes its stand with it in a single reality. So the spirit of the real remains with it when it turns back to itself, and the gaze of the sun abides with the blessed eye that considers its own radiance. The friendship of the elements accompanies the man into the stillness of dying and becoming. This is the sound through the ages of the sufficient, true, and pure saying of the eye by those persons who, like Socrates and Goethe, are bound up in relation. And we remember that the thou is encountered not just person to person, but also potentially in man in relation to nature and man in relation to art. And his third example is Jesus. And for Jesus, he says, it is the eye of unconditional relation in which the man calls his thou father. And in such a way, he himself is simply son and nothing else but son. Whenever he says I, he can only mean the I of the whole holy primary word that has been raised for him into unconditional being. Separation ever touches him. His solidarity of relation is the greater. He speaks to others only out of this solidarity. It is useless to seek the limit, to limit this I to a power in itself, or this thou to something dwelling in ourselves once again to empty the real, the present relation of reality. I and thou abide. Every man can say thou, and is then I. Every man can say father, and is then son. Reality abides. He's going to then uh, contrast These sort of supreme examples of of I-thou relationship with the supreme individual, uh, which is his example is Napoleon. The word I remains the shibboleth of mankind. Napoleon spoke it without power to enter into relation, but he spoke of it as the I of a consummation. He who strives to say it as he says it only betrays the desperation of his own self-contradiction. What is self-contradiction? If a man does not represent a priori of re- the a priori of relation in his living of the world, he does not work out and realize the inborn thou on what meets it, then it strikes inward. It develops on the unnatural, impossible object of the eye. That is, it develops where there's no place at all for it to de- develop. See, the self-contradiction is the I trying to make itself a kind of self-sufficient object. The individual I does not recognize that its a priori uh, true nature is its connectedness, its embeddedness, its relation. Individuality is an attempt to an attempt at self-sufficiency. And here it may sound something very similar to the idea of separation in Buddhism. But what's interesting and what the next section I'm going to read is that um, In a way, he says the ultimate fantasy of um, the individual I, its perversion of reality into spirituality, is a kind of self-generated fantasy of oneness. And that uh, so much of what gets called mysticism is not a genuine relation with reality, but a kind of uh, uh, self-indulgent, self-obsessed kind of um, fantasy of union with something abstract rather than... Uh, a genuine relation. Let me read uh, the section where he talks about um, this kind of um, attempt to retreat into something like spirituality. At times the man shuddering at the alienation between the I and this world comes to reflect that something is to be done. And when in the grave night hour you lie, racked by waking dreams, bul- bulwarks have fallen away and the abyss is screaming, and note amid your torment, there's still life, if only I got through to it. But how, how? So this man in the hours of reflection, shuddering and aimlessly considering this and that, and perhaps away in the unloved knowledge of the depths within him, he really knows the direction of reversal leading through sacrifice. But he spurns this knowledge. Mysticism cannot resist the sun of electric light. He's calling mysticism uh, the kind of sacrifice of individuality uh, that he intuits is necessary but doesn't want to face. He calls thought, in which he rightly has great confidence to his aid, it shall make good everything for him again. It is in truth the high art of thought to paint a reliable picture of the world, that is even worthy of belief. So this man says to his thought, you see this thing stretched out here with the cruel eyes? Was it not my playfellow once? Well, let's see if I just skip here. Will you? And thought ready with its service and its arts, paints with its well-known speed. One, no, two rows of pictures. On the right wall and the left. On the one, there are world pictures of thought, the uh, the universe. The tiny earth plunges from the whirling stars, tiny man from the teeming earth, and now history bears him further through the ages to rebuild persistently the anthill of the cultures which history crushes underfoot. Beneath the row of pictures is written one and all. On the other wall, there takes place the soul. A spinner is spinning the orbits of all the stars and life of all creation and the history of the universe. Everything is woven on one thread. And there is no longer, and is no longer called stars and creation and universe but sensation and imaginings, or even experiences, and the conditions of the soul. And beneath that row of pictures is written, one and all. Henceforth, if ever the man shudders at the alienation and the world strikes terror in his heart, he looks up to the left or to the right and sees a picture. In one, he sees the eye embedded in the world, and there's really no eye at all, so the world can nothing can do nothing to the eye, and he's put at ease. Or he sees the world is embedded in the eye, and there's really no world at all. And, and th- that puts him at ease. Another time, if the man shudders at the alienation, and the eye strikes terror at his heart. He looks up and sees a picture. Which picture doesn't matter? The empty eye is stuffed full with the world, Or the stream and the where the stream of the world flows over it, and he is at ease. So, in other words, the eye creates sort of two versions of uh, spirituality or idealism. Uh, either the I is not separate from the great flow of the world and is dissolved into it. Or the other picture is the world is nothing but the creation of his imagination and the sum total of his experiences, right? Either he dissolves in the world or the world dissolves in him. All these are grand abstractions that often pass for spirituality and Buber says, are the fantasized uh, 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 anodynes of the uh, eye that won't face uh, the reality of self-contradiction. But a moment comes when the shuddering man looks up and sees both pictures in a flash together, and a deeper shudder sees him. He sees both versions, and they're sort of contradictory to one another, so suddenly the validity of either one of them is called into question. That's going to bring us uh, to the beginning of part three. And this is going to be the um, introduction of the um, eternal vow. I admit that uh, this is a concept that gives me a lot of trouble, and I'd probably be happier if he just skipped this section entirely. But he wrote it, so I think we're going to have to deal with it a little bit. I'll just, uh, today, just read a little bit of the first couple pages. The extended lines of relation... Meet in the eternal vow. Every particular gl- vow is a glimpse through relation to the to an eternal vow. My copy is smudged here, and I can't fully read that line. But it says, by means of every particular vow, the primary word addresses the eternal vow. Through the mediation of the Thou of all beings, fulfillment and non-fulfillment of relation comes to them. The inborn Thou is realized in each relation and consummated in none. It is consummated only in the direct relation with the Thou that by its nature cannot become it. Now what makes me uncomfortable about this is the kind of tendency to abstract from each particular being to a capital B being, right? A kind of each thing is just a reflection of a larger eternal abstraction. I think that is a very dangerous and ultimately pernicious philosophical move. Um, and it may be... I'm um, Worried that uh, that's where Buber's going, uh, and uh, maybe he's going to redeem himself. But I'm I'm nervous and suspicious when I read this kind of language. Uh, in a certain sense, it's reminiscent of a kind of Hinduism where the Atman, the individual soul is supposed to be a bit of the divine spark of the Brahman, of the, the individual soul is a piece of the divine soul. Uh, this is what Buddha specifically contradicted with the idea of no self. Uh, he did away with the not only the idea of the individual personal self, but of some overarching divine self of which we're all part. But it's a very persistent idea. And uh, even in Buddhism, you get people treating Buddha nature as if it meant something like that. So let me read a little more, Buber, about the eternal thou, and we'll see uh, what we think of it. Men have addressed their eternal Thou with many names. In singing of him who is thus named, they have always had the Thou in mind. The first myths were hymns of praise. Then the names took refuge in the language of it. Men were more and more strongly moved to think of and address their eternal Thou as an It. But all God names, God's names are hallowed for in them he is not merely spoken about, but spoken to. Many men wish to reject the word God as a legitimate usage because it is so misused. It is indeed the most heavily laden of all the words used by men. For that very reason, it is the most imperishable and most indispensable. What does all the mistaken talk about God's being and works matter in comparison with the one truth that all men have addressed God, had God himself in mind? For he who speaks the word God, and really has thou in mind, whatever the illusion by which he is held, addresses the true thou of his life, which cannot be limited by another thou, and to which he stands in relation that gathers up and includes all others. But when he too abhors the name and believes himself to be godless and gives his whole being to addressing the thou of his life as as a thou that cannot be limited by another, he addresses God. So he acknowledges how God, as a word or a concept, is easily misused, turned into a thing, something that we think we're going to use to our advantage the way an individual talks about my race, my people, my God. Uh, That's the perversion of of a vow relationship. But somehow underlying all that, uh, because it's our basic nature, something of this eternal vow can't be uh, contaminated and is there whether we uh, recognize it or misuse it or not. Um, I don't know what that is. Uh, I would be much happier uh, sticking with Socrates and Goethe. Thou as a relation to other people and thou as a relationship to the natural world and all of life. Uh, what we're going to imagine as the eternal thou i don't know and i'm suspicious but i'm going to leave it there for today for our discussion and i will uh, see if i can pick out some sections for next time to help us clarify it for better or for worse